G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. You've written your book. It's called Daring to Disciple. And you're really elevating this whole idea of discipleship way above where perhaps the perception of many Australian Christians is at. Uh, Do we need this new elevation to a new level? What are your thoughts on how important it is to talk about this issue of discipleship? Well, the book arises, of course, out of my own experience of about five decades in Christian ministry and leadership. And uh, looking back over history, you can see where we have come uh, right through the Middle Ages into the the time of Luther and Calvin, those um, early uh, reformers, where they made certain discoveries, uh, taking them back to the priority of the Word of God as as compared with... uh, the primacy of traditions of the church, but they didn't discover everything. And then uh, we came along a little bit further. Uh, A couple of hundred years later, William Carey in the English-speaking world led into the cross-cultural missions experience, which wasn't part of the reformers' thinking. And uh, Carey also didn't discover everything because he was swept up uh, by the reformations which came, say, through the Wesleys and so forth in our English traditions, discovery of the new birth experience and so from that time on evangelicals at least have become uh, focused and rightly so on the primacy of the new birth but uh, that has drifted into a tradition of people coming into the evangelical stream which admittedly until recent times was growing and then settling down and being carefully churchianized in the structures and practices of church Stepping back from all of that, if we look at our own history in the just the recent history in the middle of the nineteen uh, in the in the beginning of the nineteen uh, hundreds, Christianity was about thirty three or thirty four percent of world population. Uh, then, uh, at the beginning of the twentieth century, we drifted down to thirty two percent. Beginning of the twenty first century, we're twenty twenty uh, we're thirty two percent still. In other words, we've plateaued. In the meantime, not only have we plateaued, but of course, in the first world, the Western world, we're going backwards and we're de-Christianizing rapidly. The percentage of world population is maintained simply because of the revivals in the third world. In uh, South America in 2014, they were regarded then as the most populous Christian continent. They were overtaken by Africa in October 2018 as the most populous Christian continent. That's wonderful. But in the meantime, there's this huge leakage and loss in the first world, and it's coming about because we've forgotten that we're not just to make converts. We are there to make disciples and disciples who multiply. And in the meantime, what is happening on the context of the world We have the number one challenge arising through Islam, which at the beginning of the 20th century was 11%, and today that is 26%.
of the world population scheduled to overtake Christianity numerically in the latter part of this century. So unless something changes dramatically, unless we get back to our roots and do what we are commanded to do, in spite of all of our wealth and our knowledge that we have, at least in the West, we're going nowhere, we're going backwards, and if we want to continue to do that, it's like I think it was Einstein who said, and he's worthy of listening to, that if we do the same thing today that we were doing yesterday, you'll guarantee to get the same results tomorrow. And those results are staring us in the face. Going back. Okay, so what we've got is a wonderful story that is developing in Africa, a wonderful story that's developing in South America. You're making a reference to Western civilization, where you're saying Christianity has plateaued and indeed is beginning to go backwards. If we keep doing the same things we've always done, we're in for a really challenging time. In fact, when you talk about walking into oblivion, unless there's a change, uh, this is a reference, and you made a couple of references there and love to unpack these a little more. Uh, given that you're, uh, you're able to uh, talk cross-culturally here, you mentioned the rise of Islam uh, and the decline of Christianity. You said that Islam is on track to eclipse Christianity this century. That's got to be a challenge for every Christian believer because knowing how culture is changing so quickly, that's going to mean change and impact for us in the times to come. What are your thoughts on that idea of Christianity walking into oblivion unless there's change? Well, the uh, numerically, of course, uh, it's an uncontestable argument. It is happening and it's been happening for some time. If you just look at the situation known best of us without my referencing other nations and continents, we all know, uh, hopefully, the situation in Australia. I became a Christian from a totally non-Christian background. I was the first member of my family as a young man to discover Jesus. And at that time, this is back in the 1950s, which gives you some indication of my great age, uh, at, at that time... There's something like 60 or 70% of people who were regularly engaged in church activity. Today, that activity is about down to 7.5% and falling rapidly. Where I am down here in uh, Melbourne, in Victoria, churches are regularly being closed. And, and that's typical all over the nation. There are major denominations who are in free fall, and uh, they, for whatever reason, choose not to acknowledge that, but rather content to focus on domestic issues and forget about the rest of the world, which might be going to hell. So unless we can turn this around, we're in for a rough ride because, yes, uh, as I've referenced, Islam is rising in every single continent. The current book that I'm working on, I'm calling Future History, The Rise, or Dem rise and Demise of Christianity or Islam. It won't be both. But at this stage, uh, Islam is well and truly uh, moving to the front. And after that, if the what happens in the Middle East, which of course is heavily uh, Islamic, if that happens in other places, then it's all over Red Rover. 
and we'll have a very difficult time ahead for our children and our grandchildren. It's a bleak picture you're painting because as you talk about the rise of Islam globally, persecution of Christians accompanies that rise and so what we need to prepare for is that persecution of Christians is not going away. Is that a fair way to talk about that? Well, persecution of Christians is, uh, within the Islamic context, is well known. And yes, it will not go away. But the strange thing is that uh, where there is persecution, not just uh, within Muslim countries, but also in other hostile regimes, say certain communist countries and so forth, it is in those places where Christianity is growing strongest. Because our problem in the West is, I, I, I reduce to this, is that we are so affluent that in practice we have no real need of God. We are practical atheists. And if you go back through the Old Testament, you find that when the people of Israel were about to cross over the Jordan into the Promised Land, if I can paraphrase, God said to them, now look, you're going into this land of milk and honey. You've been through all the hardship of 40 years of deprivation. That's hardened you up to do what I want you to do. Now you're going to a land of milk and honey, and you're going to get rich and fat, and you will forget all about the Lord your God, and I'm going to have to come and slap you around a bit to remind you. Well, of course, that very thing happened regularly on a, a century cycle type of thing as we go through the Old Testament. So we understand that affluence is toxic to spirituality. The church in the West is so affluent and so bloated and so self-contented that we have never, ever had to be fundamentally challenged. And therefore, we lack the strength, the spiritual uh, dynamism to respond to the situations. We're revisiting a conversation with Dr. Stuart Robinson talking about his book called Daring to Disciple. In this part of the conversation, uh, Dr. Robinson responds to a question from Gabby in Western Australia. He asked a question about mission outreach to Muslims in the Middle East. Look, I just want to back up uh, your guest's uh, comments, Dr. Robinson's comments about the Middle East. I'm from... Uh, Lebanon originally from a very long time ago and when we when we left there there was about 70% Christians in that country now it's about 30 and we we actually went a couple of years ago there and we saw exactly what was going on and why it's happening there's two main sectors of, of the Muslim religion and I'm not anti-Muslim but uh, the Shiites are getting bankrolled by the Iranians and the uh, Sunnis are getting bankrolled by the Saudis and the poor Christians in between are getting squeezed like wouldn't believe they are they're they are really suffering and they're they're wondering why the West has actually left them alone and uh, let them disintegrate and almost disappear from that place where Jesus walked. It's quite sad what I saw there. Wow, Gabby, let's get a thought or two. Uh, Stuart, yeah. your thoughts for Gabby. Yeah, the figures you're quoting uh, are probably already outdated because, as you know, the uh, the Christian minority there is shrinking rapidly. And uh, yes, they're under tremendous pressure from both sides with the uh, Iranian government cr- uh, creating the arc of uh, Shiite influence through uh, Iran and uh, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and of course now down in uh, Yemen amongst the Houthis. So you've got this uh, great surge going on there. 
but of course, the decline of Christianity in its homeland is even more devastating in places like Iran and Iraq, where they're now down to about 1.5 or 2 percent of uh, Christians are remaining, where historically, of course, they've uh, lived ever since the beginning of the faith. And ISIS uh, did a, a horrendous work in both clearing out and killing uh, those believers who would not become uh, Muslim. Uh, there was no one to rescue them. Uh, and the fascinating thing is that superpowers like America virtually ignored their requests for help. And to degree, that still goes on. So uh, the future there is quite bleak, uh, as you suggest. Gabby, thank you so much for your great insight. Let's pick up here, Stuart. Based on what Gabby is saying, and there's a real-life illustration where you can see the numbers changing dramatically in the nation of Lebanon. This idea of an eclipse of Christianity, and uh, I think this concept is so powerful for us to understand uh, why this discipleship issue is going to be so important for us, but... Christianity is in danger of eclipse in nations like Lebanon, but nations like Australia too. What are your thoughts for that idea? Well, it's in danger because the same uh, problems that uh, in in Australia and in in a place like Lebanon, I'm I'm not picking out any particular nation here, but overall, we have focused on uh, churchianizing people rather than discipling people. And where that can be reversed and disciples are made, the situation can turn around somewhat dramatically. For instance, uh, in uh, Iran, when uh, Ayatollah came to Ayatollah Khomeini came to power in uh, 1979. He promised heaven on earth, and uh, in fact, of course, what turned up was something quite different. But at that time, there had been in that nation, uh, uh, the general uh, figure is about 500 Muslim background believers. And uh, then things started to change. Two things happened. Uh, One, persecution rapidly came with the new uh, Islamic revolution ushered in by the Ayatollahs. And secondly, key people discovered the power of discipleship. And so what happened then was by 2008, I think it was, there was something like uh, regarded 250,000 Muslim background believers. And then by 2016, that number had gone up to about 500,000. And it's generally uh, accepted today that the fastest growing church anywhere is probably the church in Iran, which is under tremendous persecution. However, there is also movements there of uh, very strategic discipleship top to bottom. And those movements are having a profound effect in turning things around. Yes, of course, uh, these disciples, when they become disciples, recognize that uh, their lives will be under threat. But that's precisely what Jesus told us to expect anyway. So uh, when you run the two together, of course, that aspect of persecution, and then link it in with uh, well, pri- the priority of discipleship, you have an unstoppable movement, just as exactly as it was uh, in the earliest uh, centuries of Christianity with the very oppressive and dangerous uh, rulership of Rome. 
Stuart, let's bring this back to Aussies listening to our conversation today because we're not experiencing, as you say, these depths of persecution that we're seeing in other nations around the world. In fact, you identified that our big problem right now may be our affluence. But let's talk about discipleship in this context that we have in Australia because we might get the impression here in Australia that when we talk about discipleship, we're talking about something really complicated and that's for leaders and that's for people who've got special degrees from university or something like that. But you take some time in your book to talk about your own story and you talk about just how shaky the start was in your own Christian walk I wonder if you can take us back to those early days and and bring listeners into an Australian type of context of what we might understand about discipleship. Well, when I became uh, a Christian, it was uh, typically in the 50s and 60s, we had these evangelistic rallies. And uh, I went along to one of those. uh, And uh, there I did what I was asked to do. I put up my hand to receive Jesus. And then, of course, I was tricked in coming to the front. I make sure I never do that in my own preaching. I always say at the beginning what's going to happen at the end, so there are no surprises. But uh, when I went to the front of that meeting, uh, not knowing too much, uh, I was counseled by a pastor, and he was a great and gracious person. I've got to say that because later on he became my father-in-law. But... uh, um, he he said to me four fundamental things, all of which were true. Uh, okay, you're a Christian now, so uh, or you, you you accepted Jesus. So here are four things you've got to do: you've got to pray, you've got to go to church, you've got to um, uh, witness, and uh, now the four things. Uh, Read the Bible, <laughs> I think it was. Read the Bible. That's right. Uh-huh. Yes. So, as as someone who has no background at all, which of course is quite typical of increasing number of Aussies. I, that's the only instruction I had. And so I found the nearest church was a little church down the road, happened to be a Baptist church with about 20 people in it, and I started to go there. Well, then, uh, and it had a mother church about uh, four kilometers away, uh, a few hundred people in that one. And so I noticed uh, the way I, the only way I could learn was to watch what Christians did. So I noticed that the most important people in that church, they carried big black Bibles with gold edging on it. So I saved up all my money and went to the only Christian bookshop in the city and bought one of those. Uh, Mind you, as I started to read it, I couldn't understand it. It was the King James Version, very, very small print, and it took me about a month to get through the introduction. (laughs) I liked the stories that once I got into Genesis and Exodus, by the time I got into Deuteronomy and Leviticus, oh, goodness me, I was prepared to give up. I totally lost. So that was my experience in Bible reading. And and then for prayer, I I didn't know what to say or what to do. I thought, oh, I think I'd seen in the movie or something, you've got to close your eyes and put your hands together and and, uh, get down on your knees. I did that, except my non-believing brother, my elder brother, jumped on me immediately, so I gave that away. <laughs> and then uh, to, uh, uh, that, that was two of the things, um, witnessing, and what was the fourth? Um, Reading the Bible. Uh, pr- no, uh, yeah, I had prayer, uh, going to church, reading the Bible, and witnessing. Being a witness, yes. uh, and, and people laugh at this, but, but it was, I didn't know the meaning of the word, However, I had had certain um, interactions uh, with the 
constabulary of those days, and I knew that uh, witnesses went along to the local court. The magistrate uh, would call them in and they'd do something. So I got on my push bike, which is all I had in those days, and I rode and I, I stood outside that, that court, and I thought, now, somehow or other, I'm supposed to go in there and do something. I don't know what, and I don't even know how to get in there. People laugh at that. But as a new Christian, I had no idea what all of these words meant and what activities they were and how I was to implement them. And I got no help from anybody. But the extraordinary thing was I knew that I was called into the ministry and that I would have to train for that, which later I did. And I went into theological college learning all this highfalutin theological stuff which the great scholars have written through the ages. And don't get me wrong, I love scholarship, I love studying. But in practical terms, it wasn't that helpful, and it wasn't until the second year of theological college. There you don't get taught how to pray or how to read the Bible or how to witness. We're, we're beyond that, aren't we? Well, actually, we're not. But it wasn't until uh, an American came and... Um, met me and and we started to talk about my personal life and he got beside me and started to teach me some of these basic things which formed the foundation for the rest of my life and ministry. And that was like an affirmation of those things that your future father-in-law shared with you on the night that you went forward and uh, made yeah. a decision to follow Christ. Those four things obviously have stayed with you. Pray, go to church, read the Bible, and be a witness. Those things are profound, simple but profound. Yes, yes. Well, you see, prayer gives you the connection with God. That creates a relationship. That creates intimacy, which is what your spiritual growth is dependent upon. A church gives you community. You cannot be a Christian in isolation. You need others around you. And uh, witnessing flows out of things. And, of course, the Word of God is the constant direction daily. That, for me, after all these years, is still the number one thing. So this morning, I got up at 3.45 a.m. I normally get up a bit early because that means no one's going to be calling me. And there I can sit and read the Bible. And if I don't do that, I have a wife who will often ask me, did you read your Bible today? <laughs> We've been listening in to an archive conversation with Dr. Stuart Robinson talking about his book, Daring to Disciple. You can connect with Dr. Robinson through his website, drstuartrobinson.com. His book, Daring to Disciple, is available in Christian bookstores and through online booksellers. Keep your eye out for other books by Dr. Stuart Robinson, The Hidden Half, Women and Islam. Travelling Through Troubled Times, Released from Fear Through Faith with Habakkuk and Islam Rising. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.